it's been a while since we've talked about the gospel. So what I'd like to do is talk to you about the gospel. Everybody, of course, knows gospel simply means good news. Why that term? That's the first question. And that leads to a couple of other questions. For whom is it good news? And what is that good news? And what I will suggest to you is that there are a couple of different audiences and the gospel is different for those audiences, which may not be something you'd quite thought about, but in fact it's true. It's what scripture says. So two audiences, the Jews and the Gentiles. And the gospel for the Jews is different than the gospel for the Gentiles. So let's start with the Jews. When is the gospel given to the Jews? Before the crucifixion. Yeshua sends his disciples out to give the gospel to Israel before he's crucified. What are they looking for? They've got this problem. And their problem is that they're up to their hips and hairy Romans. And they would really like to have a national leader come in the, in the sense of the Maccabees, for example. And they'd really like to have a national leader come and get these Romans out of there, restore the kingdom of David, and have Israel go back to what it was before it was exiled centuries ago. That's what they're looking for. So what does Yeshua say to those folks? It's in several places, but I'm going to read it out of Matthew 10. And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. And then verse 5, these twelve Yeshua sent out instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles, enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, heal the sick raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons, you receive without paying, give without pay. So the gospel to Israel is the kingdom is here. And they all know what the kingdom is, they all know what the kingdom is supposed to look like, and you can tell what the kingdom is supposed to look like. One, the king reigns. Two, we've gotten rid of demons. Three, folks are healed. That's the kingdom they're looking for. That's what they want restored. That's the gospel that they're expecting to receive, and that's the gospel that he gives them. And oh, by the way, as I said, this is before the crucifixion. That leads to the gospel that he gives to the Gentiles. When does he give that gospel? After the resurrection. So the gospel that goes out to the Gentiles, and oh, by the way, the Jews get to use it too. But the gospel that goes out to the Gentiles is after the crucifixion and after the resurrection. The question there becomes, why is that good news to them? What are they expecting? What are they looking for? What's the problem that this gospel is going to address for those people? We've already described what the gospel problem is that it's going to address for the Jews. What's the problem that it's going to address for the Gentiles? And what I'm going to suggest to you, it's a completely different set of problems, at least in their minds. Now, again, everybody understands that all of humanity needs salvation. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about what's the message that he's sending to each group 
and why does that group receive that message as good news? So in the case of the Jews, what they're looking for is restoration of the kingdom. So when he proclaims the restoration of the kingdom, that is good news. That's what we're looking for. That's what I'm proclaiming. Hence, it's good news. So with the Gentiles, the question then becomes, what is he telling that's good news to them? Why would they regard this as good news? What is it that their people are longing for that paganism doesn't provide? Because paganism is full of tales, myths, legends, and so forth of a man, God, who walks among the people, who is killed and dies and is raised again from the dead and brings on a new kingdom. It's all over humanity. A couple of examples. Osiris and Isis in Egypt. Tammuz and Ishtar in Babylon. The Japanese have the same story. The Aztecs have the same story. The Norwegians, the Norse, have the same story. So what is different about this story of a man who walks among us as God, dies and is raised from the dead, and is going to bring on a new kingdom? Why is that story good news, and why is it different from the story that every other people has? Because it is different. And that difference is good news. Now, if you look at the tales that are among the pagans, minor variations on this, but all of the struggle is among the gods. So you have, for example, Osiris and Isis, and you have two gods fighting, and one god kills the other, and the god that's killed gets raised from the dead, and so forth. Same thing with Ishtar and Tammuz. Ishtar gets sent down to the underworld, and... She comes back up and she sees Tammuz and sends him down. But basically it's all the same story. And the thing about those stories is they all revolve around kings and heroes. Very little to do with common people. So one of the things that happens in Egypt is they have this story of Osiris. And so we're going to need our bodies. So they very carefully embalm their bodies and they stack them away in pyramids so when this happens they're going to be able to come back in their bodies and go on. Well, what if you can't afford to have your body embalmed? What if you're just some peasant farmer and you can't afford to have your body embalmed? You're not a hero, you're not a king. What's your role in all this? Not much. In fact, not much different than what you've got now. So, where's the good news for you in all this? And I'm going to suggest there isn't very much. And the difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of all these pagan gods, God small g, God big g, is that in the kingdom of God, he's not so much interested in the power of God as in righteousness and morality. So it isn't the case that he's particularly interested in kings and heroes, although kings and heroes are fine. I mean, God doesn't have anything against kings and heroes. They're okay. But that's not the focus of his kingdom. The focus of his kingdom is righteousness and morality. And anybody can attain to that. In other words, you can be a righteous farmer, or you can be a righteous cobbler, or you can be a righteous shopkeeper, and... 
you are in fact then as useful and welcome in the kingdom of God as anybody else. So the kingdom that you're looking for is very different than the pagan kingdom that is set up by these pagan myths. Hence, good news. It's good news to you. That commission to tell the good news is in Mark. Mark 16, 15. And he said to them, Go to all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. Notice what's happening in the kingdom as far as Israel is concerned is very similar to what's happening in the kingdom as far as the Gentiles are concerned. You've got healing, all those kinds of things. You've got freedom. So the thing is the same. And the other part of the good news to the Gentiles, by the way, is that this kingdom that I have described to Israel, that is really much better than the pagan kingdom that your myths have set up, you Gentiles get to be a part of that. That's also part of the good news. Because if I'm a Gentile, and we've got these Jews over here, and they've got their prophecies of the kingdom, that looks really pretty good, but I'm not in their covenant. I'm not part of their covenant. So when their God comes back and restores their kingdom, what's in it for me as a Gentile? And part of the gospel then becomes, oh, by the way, you Gentiles get to become part of it too. And I'll read that again, lots of places, but I'll read that from Ephesians. So Ephesians 3. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Messiah Yeshua, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, now the mystery was made known to me by revelation. As I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Messiah Yeshua through the gospel. So, the gospel is two things for the Gentiles. Thing one is what's coming is better than anything paganism has offered you. And thing two is it's not just for the Jews. You get to be part of this. Hence, that becomes good news for the Gentiles. Now, the question obviously arises, and we run into it all the time, especially in many messianic circles. One of the things that happens in messianic circles is people come out of the Sunday church and discover the Torah and discover the richness of all the rest of the Bible, and you know, whereas they had grown up mostly living at the end of the book, they discover there's more to the book and it's really rich. And often what happens is they get into the Jewish literature and so forth, and the Jews don't believe in this Yeshua guy. I mean, they believe he existed, but they don't believe he's God, and they don't believe he's the Messiah. 
and often messianics sort of slide right over into Judaism because these are really smart people and they're really persuasive and they got really good reasons why they don't believe this. So what's the problem there? Why don't they believe it and why should they? That's sort of the next step in the process because remember I said you got the gospel that was given to the Jews before the crucifixion, you got the gospel that's given to the whole creation, Gentiles plus Jews, so what's the problem with the Jews and why are they not correct in their belief that this guy Yeshua wasn't the right one? Well the first problem is of course they know all the myths in all the world and this guy Yeshua looks just like every other mythical guy who walked on the earth as God was killed and went down to Hades and was raised from the dead. You know, he, What's the difference between this guy, Yeshua, and Osiris or Persephone or any of these pagan gods? That's the first problem they have because what they say is, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. God says, only me, Yehovah. That's it. And so what Christianity looks like on the surface is somebody just taking all these pagan myths and tacking them on to Torah and creating a new religion. That's what it looks like. And as I said, the kingdom promised by Yeshua is the kingdom that is promised to Israel. It is not the kingdom that is promised by Osiris. Very different kingdoms. That's sort of thing one. Thing two is resurrection is essential to the story. In the Jewish literature, in the Old Testament, in the Tanakh, in the Torah, there are two visions of the Messiah. So let's look at the one in Zechariah. And I'm in Zechariah 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous, and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So when this guy Yeshua announces by sending out disciples and so forth that he is in fact that Messiah, they don't see the national hero that is coming to restore the kingdom. What they see is this guy riding on a donkey. And in their understanding, if we don't restore the kingdom, then this is a failed Messiah. And by the way, Jewish history is littered with failed messiahs. People that come and they cause a great stir and they say, I'm the one and so forth, and the Greeks swat them down or the Romans swat them down or somebody swats them down and it all just sort of goes away and they say, ah, could have been the one, but he wasn't. And that's sort of how they look at Yeshua. Could have been the one, but he wasn't. And oh, by the way, there's no way he can be God. I mean, that's, we can't do that. We can't go that far. So the first thing is Yeshua shows up riding on a donkey. So he does fulfill a messianic prophecy. What he doesn't do is look like King David again. His death is necessary. Two reasons. You all know the ceremony of the scapegoat, where Israel symbolically lays its hand on the goat, and this goat then takes the sins of Israel away. That's what Yeshua is. 
He is the one that takes away the sin, not just of Israel, but of the whole world. So in that sense, he's the scapegoat. The other thing is we all know that there is a new covenant. And that new covenant has to be ratified by blood. There is no covenant without the death of a covenant victim. Now, in most cases, that's a bull or a sheep or a goat or something like that. So when you cut a covenant, you cut the throat of the victim and the parties then make the covenant over the dead victim. Well, in this case, you have to have blood to seal that covenant. Hence, you must have the death of a covenant victim. So the new covenant is ratified in his blood. And then the resurrection becomes the first fruits of the resurrection, the beginning of the kingdom, etc. And then you have, at some point in the future, the Messiah will return and he will come as King David. Not necessarily literal King David, but he will come back on the white horse as the conquering hero. And what the Jews don't see is this is one being, two incarnations. What we see is it's one being, two incarnations, and it's the same being, Yeshua, who's going to do this. So everything that Yeshua does is in accordance with the scriptures. Now there's one other difference between Yeshua and all of these myths that look superficially very similar. As I started off by saying, all of these myths involve interplay between the gods. So you have one god gets ticked off about another god and slays that god and sends him down to the underworld and then some other god goes down and retrieves him and brings him up and we have the new kingdom. That's sort of typical of all of these god myths. And by the way, every country has one. This is universal to humanity. What's the difference between that and what goes on with Yeshua? Who kills Yeshua? We do. There's no gods involved there. It's us doing the killing. This is not some mythical thing way back in antiquity where it's now been two gods fighting and we're just sort of standing around watching and you know whatever happens with the gods happens with the gods you know we don't have any control over that kind of stuff we don't have any guilt we're not responsible that's the difference between the gospel and these pagan myths we are responsible we're the ones who did it. And it's well documented. You can't skip that fact. You go back to Osiris and Tammuz and all those folks. That's all back in legend and you know, the legends have been smooshed up and it's all among the gods. We get to watch and you know, we get to tell the stories and all that kind of stuff, but we're not responsible for any of that. It wasn't us that killed him. It was some god. We can't finesse that here. We have to take responsibility for what we did. And in taking responsibility for what we did, the way is now open to repentance. We can acknowledge what we did. We can repent. We can ask for forgiveness. And that's part of the gospel. That the blood of the scapegoat, Yeshua, is sufficient to cover those sins when we repent. 
So you see the difference? It's really important because if you talk to your Jewish friends, you sort of get some variation of you're a polytheist. You believe in multiple gods. We don't. We believe in one God. And the story that I have just described, which is in the Gospels, is all necessary for the kingdom that the Jews are expecting to work. In order for that to work, all of this has to happen. So, there's a third group that the Gospel is aimed toward. Talked about pagans back then, I talked about Jews. I will talk about people today. Now, there are lots of people who live in this world and have fallen into the trap, the trap of the world. And they have lost hope. They're stuck in whatever they're stuck in and they don't see a way out. It's not satisfying. In fact, they've been told that nothing has any purpose anymore. There's no purpose to all this. Now, I think it's absolutely hilarious that a universe that has no purpose evolved beings who care about purpose more than anything. How does that work? Why don't they want to turn? Why don't they want to come and partake of the gospel? And I will suggest that there's two reasons. Power and sex. That's what paganism offers. And when they look at the gospel and they look at the Torah or the scriptures, what they say is, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm going to have to give up my power or I'm going to have to control my sexual appetite. And I don't want to do that. That's no fun. Your God's a killjoy. They eventually come to understand. Most everybody does. As you go through life and you sort of immerse yourself in the stuff that the world has to offer to the exclusion of what God has to offer. At some point you begin to realize this is empty. There's no purpose here. I don't see anything that's going to come of this that I'm going to want long term. And so for those people, once they finally see what the world has to offer is not satisfying, what you can do is you can come to them and say, taste and see that the Lord is good. And you can explain to them this gospel. You can explain to them why it is that God is good and why it is that's different and why all of these stories that they may have heard or somebody has told them are not true and that this is true. You're now in a position to explain that to them. To your Jewish friends, you're in a position to explain why this is not simply a retelling of Osiris and Isis or Tammuz and Ishtar. You're in a position now to explain to your believing Jewish friends why you're not a polytheist. Why the story of the crucifixion and the resurrection is not the same as those myths. So go out and do it.